All right, we are back for part three in our series all about play. In my last podcast, we talked about the six main stages of play. So in this podcast today, we're going to talk about other types of play. There's so many different types of play. There's so many different play theories. There's so many different therapeutic interventions to help facilitate play. There's so many different specialties that look at play in a variety of ways. Um, You know, there's OT, there's speech, there's special education, there's um, psychology, there's there's a lot. Um, So by no means is this the only type of play. Um, And just know that these podcast series are only just scratching the surface of what is play. And I'm sure there's a lot more about play that we have yet to even discover. So much more research that I guess is either in the works, maybe we haven't heard of yet, or is yet to even be thought of. Um, But nonetheless, in this podcast, we are going to talk about just a few different types of play. Hello, I'm Marissa, a certified, licensed, and practicing pediatric occupational therapist, and this is OT with Marissa. Here we will review common terminology and topics, chat about daily OT practices, and provide simple but effective tools and strategies you can implement with the child or children in your life. Whether you're thinking about a career in occupational therapy, are a current student, new grad, or seasoned therapist, my hope is this podcast has something to offer you to learn, grow, and be the best therapist you can. I'm so happy you're here. All right, so let's talk about different types of play. I kind of have a hodgepodge of different notes Um, talking about different types of play, giving examples of each of them, and then similar to the last podcast, we'll talk about ways to encourage different styles or types of play with kids. They are in no particular order. Um, So we're kind of just flying by the seat of my pants here when it comes to discussing the types of play. But the first type of play we're going to talk about is symbolic play. I love symbolic play. Um, I feel like you see kids a little bit less and less doing symbolic play, or at least I feel like as a child, I engaged in a lot of symbolic play. Symbolic play develops around a year and a half, so about 18 months old, and this is where toddlers uh, maybe start to experiment with using objects to represent another object. So this might look like you're using a spoon to represent a microphone, or maybe you're going to use a calculator to represent talking on the phone, or maybe you have a little bowl and you're going to put some leaves in the bowl and use a stick to stir those leaves up, and so you're playing like pretend kitchen, and you're using items that aren't the real item to symbolize whatever it is that you're creating in your play. So ways to encourage this is just to help demonstrate or scaffold and build upon what your child's already doing. So let's say you're outside playing in a sand pit or you're playing in the dirt um, and the kiddo has a little bowl and they're just kind of like putting things in the bowl. 
And you, maybe you are then like, oh, stir, 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 let's make a soup. Maybe you build in a little bit of a song and then they can work on some stirring. So not only are you starting to build in, obviously, some imitation and some motor skills, but that symbolic play. You could also use like certain questions to help facilitate symbolic play. So if you see your kiddo is playing with something a particular way, maybe go, hmm, what else could work? Or, hmm, could we do this? Or, you know, could we throw in these beads? What could these beads be, right? Or, you know, how could we make, how would we make a pie with this mud? Or just kind of prompting them to think beyond what's objectively in front of them. This really helps to promote imagination, creativity, and also problem-solving skills, right? If I don't have this thing that I need or that I wish that I had, what else could suffice? What else could I use in place of that? Another type of play that's pretty similar to symbolic play is dramatic or fantasy play. And depending on the research that you're looking at or the article that you're looking at, sometimes these plays types are even used interchangeably. But dramatic or fantasy play really focuses more on your child's ability to create a situation um, and execute out a sequence of events that are make-believe. Some examples might be house, or school, or restaurant, or dress up, or maybe you're reenacting a scene from a movie. So you're playing, I don't know, Harry Potter, or Mean Girls, or something like that. I say Mean Girls because in fifth grade, that's what my friends and I used to pretend to play. Um, but regardless, what the child's doing is they're trying to act out or mimic behaviors that they've seen in the real world or create their own variations or versions based on something that they've seen either in the real world or maybe even in a movie or something like that. And this really works on not only the child's imagination or and their language development, but also problem-solving working on developing and executing out a sequence of tasks and the order of which they're performed. Maybe it helps when you have like a group of kids that they're compromising or doing some problem solving together to navigate, well, how are we going to execute this out? There's a level of planning involved with dramatic and fantasy play. Within dramatic play, you may then use symbolic play. So let's pretend you're trying to play kitchen and maybe you actually have a pretend kitchen. Maybe you actually have pretend or real food in pots and pans and a pretend little oven and stove, in which case you can still execute out your fantasy play, but without really needing to symbolize something that you don't have because you have the things that are meant for that type of play. Now, let's say you don't have a pretend kitchen, you don't have pretend food, pots, pans, all of those things that I just mentioned, then you can use 
symbolic play to then play. And so this goes back to my example of you're outside and you're playing in the dirt and you're using leaves and sticks and berries, or maybe you are going over to, I don't know, your swing set and that's your restaurant, or you have a picnic table and that's like where you're taking orders, or that's maybe where you're customers are sitting. So do you see how fantasy or dramatic play can be facilitated quite easily by having the tools that are promoting that kind of play? Or you could become a little bit more creative and imaginative and still execute out that same type of play, bringing in that symbolic play. And that requires more imagination, more creativity, more ability to adapt and be flexible and use what you do have instead of feeling limited because you don't have the toy specific for that type of play. And that's kind of what I meant by I feel like you don't see symbolic play as much anymore because we have so many incredible toys out there that help to facilitate certain types of play that we don't have to be as creative as maybe we once as once as we once did. Some ways that you can help promote dramatic or fantasy play is kind of like I was just mentioning, have some of the props or the toys that would elicit that sort of play. Dolls or pretend kitchens or, you know, an apron or other costumes that they might be able to dress into, (laughs) dress up in to get into those roles. Maybe if you don't have some of these items, some of these toys, either you just don't have them on hand, or maybe you are facilitating more of a minimalistic environment, and so you don't have every single toy, or maybe because you simply just can't afford them or you don't have space for them, then teach some of that symbolic play. Then bring in and say, hey guys, I have, why don't you use my real pots and pans? Or, you know, I have whatever it is, a sock and we can stuff an old t-shirt in it. And look, now it looks kind of like a baby or kind of create that symbolism within their play so that they can then build upon that to have some of that dramatic or um, fantasy play. Another thing that I think is really important is just giving a child space to play. I remember as a kid, I'd be in my room, I'd be playing, but my door might be cracked open or I could hear a parent outside in the hallway or they'd peek their head in and I was kind of a shy kid so I would kind of stop what I was doing or I felt a little bit embarrassed that I was over here in fantasy world (laughs) and maybe... I don't know, mom or dad or whomever was going to make fun of me or not understand what I was doing. And so either create a really open space and join in on that play so that the child doesn't feel embarrassed to be expressing themselves in this way or simply leave them alone so that they have the time and space to play and execute out whatever it is that their little hearts and imagination wishes to do. All right, let's talk about another type of play, constructive play. So constructive play is really where the child is starting to create something more concrete or physical in an organized way. So think about like building with Lincoln Logs or Legos or 
participating in a craft-based activity where they're assembling, you know, paper and tissue paper with a paper plate and ribbon or yarn or something like that. Could even be making sandcastles or using clay to make little bowls or pottery or something like that. It's creating something physical and usually there's a type of sequence involved, right? So you gather your materials, maybe you're following out a plan, maybe you're following directions, maybe you're trying to replicate something in your imagination that you've seen before, but there's usually a sequence or an organized way of creating whatever it is. And then there's an outcome to the play, right? You have the Lego tower or you have built the Lincoln log house (laughs) or you have made the sandcastle and there's kind of like a finish because it's created. You know, this could even be something a little bit more grandiose. So maybe it's you're rearranging your little basement play area to create your restaurant environment, if we're going to stick with that theme throughout. But it's the construction of what it is that's physical that maybe then is eliciting into other play. Or maybe you're building a fort, right? So this could either be you're trying to build a fort in your living room using your coffee table, or maybe you're with dad or grandpa or your uncle and you're outside and you're trying to create a tree fort. But again, it's that sequence of you're gathering your materials, you're building something physical, there's a sequence, and then there's an end product. Constructive play tends to be very hands-on, and so it's really important for developing motor-based skills, bilateral coordination, in-hand manipulation, you know, some fine motor strength, that sort of thing, as well as some cognitive skills like problem solving, or even just like trial and error, try something that didn't work, try it again. It can help facilitate visual motor skills. So you see something and then you're trying to replicate it as well as some of that sequencing of following the steps. So then you start to get into some executive functions that start to play a role into that. Ways to facilitate constructive play is to have some of the materials that the kids need to then construct whatever it is that that they're interested in. So this could be like sets of things. And by what I mean is like a Lego set that has directions and all the pieces to build the dinosaur or the rocket ship. Um, maybe it's a bunch of craft materials spread out on a table. And so that is a little bit more open-minded so that they have to try to create something using those materials. So it can be pretty structured or pretty unstructured depending on what the activity is. So this is kind of where you step in as either the clinician or the parent and figure out what's going to best support that child and their interests, as well as the skills that they have. You can also kind of help to guide a child's curiosity throughout play to facilitate constructive play. So, you know, building um, race car tracks or that sort of thing. You know, what if we add in a tunnel that the car can go through and then maybe you're either bringing in pieces of that play equipment or maybe you're bringing in some of that symbolic play and you're bringing in like an old... um, 
I don't know, like paper towel or toilet paper tube, but you're still using physical materials to create whatever it is that you're trying to create. Another type of play is competitive play. So competitive play, kind of the way that it sounds is it's more of a structured or organized way of playing in which maybe there's teams or individuals and you're following a set of guidelines or rules uh, and typically you're competing so there's a winner or you know you're trying to race or achieve an outcome before somebody else does. Um, some examples are board games, sports, races, maybe even just like your organized activities, maybe through the school or something like that, like a tennis match or bowling competitions or that sort of thing where it's very organized, very structured, and there's usually a winner. Um, this sort of play is really, really good at developing social skills, as well as turn-taking, teamwork, self-regulation, um, starting to develop the concept of organization, following rules, having guidelines, establishing boundaries. I think it's really important when a child is first learning this sort of play or engaging in this sort of play that you're helping them to facilitate some of the social-emotional needs that they're going to need to be successful in this play. So helping them through that conflict resolution, helping them through that self-regulation, that whole like being a good sport, and even if you lose, you're still proud of your friend, or you realize you might have another opportunity, using some of that positive language that is encouraging the fact that even though they've lost the game or they lost at the race, that they might still have something positive that they've achieved um, and kind of being like not being that sore loser sort of say. So this sort of play is really fun. It's kind of the sort of play that we start to see in, you know, elementary school, into adolescence, and even into adulthood. But like I said, I think it's really important when we're beginning this sort of play that we are facilitating how to go about it smoothly and making sure that the child has some of those foundational skills in order to navigate some of the potential sticky situations that can arise with competitive play. Some ways that you can help to facilitate competitive play um, might be looking within your community or your school district to see what they have available for organized sports. Maybe there's, you know, a soccer team or a t-ball league or something like that that they can join. Sometimes these are seasonal. Sometimes they can be through, like, your community programs like YMCA or Boys and Girls Club or something like that. Or maybe they're, like I said, within your school district and they can um, try out for a modified or a JV or a varsity team to then get involved in some organized sports. 
if you're a clinician and you're trying to kind of incorporate a little bit of competitive play to work on those foundational skills needed, um, one thing that I used to like to do when I worked in the middle and high schools were minute to win it games. Um, so obviously this works on a variety of tasks, including motor, but it was just a really fun way to set up little competitions. And then the kids got multiple opportunities, which allowed them to experience both winning and losing within a short therapy session. Another idea might be to host a family game night or maybe even involve some people in the community or let's say your child's friend lives across the street or the next block over and once a week you have like that family game night or a community game night where people come over, you bring some favorite games, and your child just gets the opportunity to see that sometimes we're winners, sometimes we lose, and, you know, kind of learning how to take turns or maybe they have modeled to them how to navigate some of those situations. I don't think it's really fair to let it all fall on them to figure out how to be successful in competitive play. You know, it really does take some role modeling and some guidance and helping them learn, you know, how to be a good winner, how to be also a good loser. And just holding space for that child as they're developing the skills it takes to be successful in this sort of play. So maybe after a soccer game and they've lost, creating space in the car, whether it's a little bit of silence to help them regulate and process the loss, or, you know, maybe a conversation about why they're upset that they lost, or even vice versa, right? You don't want to be a sore loser, but you also don't want to be a sore winner. So even if your child, let's say, is successful in the competitive play, teaching them how to be a good sport after they've won and to kind of help pick up their teammates or help pick up um, their competitor who lost and give them a high five or say good game. And again, you're kind of role modeling to them how to execute those tasks, holding space after those tasks, and then having a conversation maybe around some sticky feelings to follow some of that competitive play. All right, we are going to talk about one more type of play. And as an OT, this is one of my favorite types of play, but I'm biased, and that is physical play. So obviously, physical play is any sort of play where you are moving your body and being active. Now, like we just talked about competitive play, physical play can be involved in competitive play. It might also be involved in some of the fantasy or dramatic play that we talked about. But physical play is really anything in which you are physically moving your body to engage in play. So some examples might be throwing a ball, rock climbing, riding a bike or a scooter, playing tag, playing hide and go seek, simply playing on playground equipment using the swing or the monkey bars or going down the slide, anything where, again, you're physically moving. Um, and this one's pretty obvious too, but physical play is fantastic at getting in some of that sensory, um, sensory information, whether it's 
vestibular input while you're swinging or going down slides, and your body is changing position in space in terms of processing movement. You're also getting in great proprioception as you might be running, or maybe you're picking some things up, or you're hitting a ball, or something like that. So you're getting great input into your muscles, tendons, ligaments, and bones. It helps to develop gross motor skills, coordination of upper and lower extremities together, perhaps crossing some midline. can also start to help to develop some um, visual motor skills or hand-eye coordination as you're catching the ball or hitting the golf ball or the tennis ball or something like that might even start to develop some fine motor skills depending on the type of play that you're engaging in. Obviously, all of these things help to improve body awareness, strength, and overall just physical fitness or mobility. Some ways to help promote physical play in children. I think really first it's by changing your own mindset. Um, to not let yourself be afraid to let your kids be active and play and climb trees and go to the top of the, the playground equipment. This is really how kids are going to start to develop their own safety awareness and their own confidence in their body and what feels good and what doesn't and where their limitations are. So think as long as you're supervising as these skills are starting to develop and you're creating a safe place for them to be able to engage in physical play, don't be the helicopter parent who's telling your kids, don't go up the slide, don't climb up too high, right? Like, I think really it's starting with your own mindset to make sure, yes, the physical play is being executed in a way where your child's not going to get seriously hurt, but allowing them space to learn these limits and engage in their physical play. Some ways that you can do this is by providing some playground equipment if you have the means to do so, or maybe taking them to a park where there is some playground equipment, letting them play outside. You can get some simple sports equipment like a soccer ball or, you know, I played lacrosse and I used to love taking my lacrosse stick and the ball and throwing it and then the dogs would play fetch and, you know, that sort of thing and just having some sports equipment around the house. My friends and I used to all go over and we would have like volleyball games every couple of weeks. And so one of, um, one of our friend's parents had like a volleyball net. So just having a facility or a space or an environment where your kids can engage in that physical play and maybe they're bringing friends along for that opportunity. Some ways that I really like to encourage physical play in my therapy sessions, my absolute favorite one is creating obstacle courses. You can create an obstacle course out of almost anything, right? Put some pillows on the floor, the floor is lava, you're trying to avoid stepping on the carpet, you're balancing on pillows. Um, I've even done like 
painter's tape. Just this week, I took um, painter's tape, and this kid and I made this little maze on his floor. So that was some good fine motor skills, some good hand-eye coordination and problem-solving ideation. We had to kind of figure out where we wanted the maze. And then he had a yoga ball, and he had to roll the yoga ball on the tape. We did wheelbarrow walks on the tape. We did tandem walking forward and backwards on the tape, like real minimal equipment. But we did like some real good physical play. I've had kids like tandem walk on tape, then jump over tape, then spin around on the tape. Um, chalk outside is really fun. You can create obstacle courses or hopscotch or things like that. So there's a lot of motor planning involved, um, a lot of body awareness needed to have slow controlled movement in order to then execute without out whatever the obstacles are. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm very passionate about my obstacle courses and physical play. Um, let's see. I think another, um, let's say you have nothing, right? You have no equipment, you have no space, you live in a studio apartment and you have a little one and you're like, I just don't have the means to provide anything. Do you have a body? Do you have hands? Great airplane or, you know, little wrestling matches or some tickles or, um, you know, Simon says, I move my body this way. Can you copy me? Um, mirror image sort of games. So many ways to create physical play, uh, and develop a lot of those foundational skills needed for general body awareness, um, motor, um, motor skills, gross and fine motor, uh, balance, that sort of thing. All right. Thank you guys for listening all the way to the end of me rambling on about some different types of play. Obviously, we just covered a couple here, and there are tons of different types of play uh, that your child may engage in or that therapists may use to help facilitate or encourage whatever skills that they're working on with their clients. Before we wrap up the podcast, I do just want, I guess as a general reminder to you, the adult listening to this, whether you're a teacher, a therapist, a parent, to remember that play really is our children's number one occupation. And that's because through all these different types of play, we are developing so many foundational really important, critical life skills. And we know as therapists that the best way to learn and the best way to engage in something is it has to be meaningful, purposeful, and motivating. And play is just that. It is meaningful to the child. It is motivating and it is the building block of their development to then be able to execute many other meaningful occupations, whether they're their self-care skills or some learning skills, their occupation as a student, whether it's, you know, engaging in their community and being, a, you know, a functional member of society in whatever occupations are later in life revolved around those. Play is kind of that base level foundation that they need to then 
be successful in all those other things. So that's why a lot of times you'll see therapists or clinicians or teachers really emphasizing play as part of their intervention plans. It's because of this. It's because it is so critically important for successful development of all the skills that I mentioned in this podcast episode, as well as so many other skills that just weren't mentioned for the sake of time. Um, that's why sometimes if you see your clinician or your teacher, or your, your therapist playing with your kids and you're like, man, I thought this was therapy. That's why. It's because it is the best way to help facilitate skills and teach a child. Thanks for listening. As a reminder, this podcast is not medical advice and does not replace the potential need for skilled and individualized therapeutic services. Please consult your pediatrician or occupational therapist for specific questions about your child. Similarly, these are my personal and professional views and opinions. If something I say does not feel right to you or is different from what you have learned, please follow your own intuition and learning quest. And remember, science and language are always changing and growing. I will try my best to stay as up-to-date as possible, but I myself am always learning. If you have any follow-up questions or requests for future podcasts, feel free to reach out to me on my Instagram at ot underscore with underscore Marissa. See you soon.